back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. Many histories of the rise of the administrative state focus on the idea of separating politics from administration. The goal there is to free administrators to make public policy based on technocratic expertise, insulated from political concerns. Today, we're joined by Judge Glock, Director of Research and Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He has a new article in Regulation Magazine examining early American experiences with independent regulatory commissions. He argues that the driving concern for regulatory commission advocates was replacing the inconsistent decisions of jurors with specialized, predictable fact-finding bodies. Progressive reformers selected leaders for regulatory commissions by focusing more on political and sectional balancing than established academic expertise or credentials. We're also joined today by the Gray Center's co-executive director, Adam White. Welcome. Well, thanks, Jace. And Judge, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Adam. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. As you know, Judge, I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time. Uh, you've participated in Gray Center programs before. You did a great paper, a working paper for us uh, or with us uh, on, in the aftermath of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic response. You called it a planning pandemic, the spread of mandated planning and its failure in crisis. And we'll link that in the show notes. But your work on the early eras of American regulation, you had a book on on, on mortgages, if I remember correctly. That's correct. Uh, and you've really taken a look back at those early days and tried to think hard about that era of regulation on its own terms and less than than through the lens of modern debates. And I, your work has just been hugely clarifying, and I'm very, very excited that we can talk about these uh, these new papers in particular. Um, but well, let's let's just start with a, a very, very broad question. Like I said, you, you, the, the virtue of your work is you really are taking these eras on their own terms. But let's start by thinking in terms of today. Uh, for decades upon decades, we've had debates about executive power and independent commissions. Uh, but the but the the key insight of your work is that the independent commissions really originated as a substitute for juries rather than a, a substitute for executive power. So how do you think of your own work in the context of modern debates over executive power? Yeah, it's one of the interesting things if you look at the history. Obviously, a lot of the big debates today are, today are totally extraneous to what they were talking about in the late 19th and early 20th century. The Today, obviously, the central debate is kind of on the Chevron doctrine and how much courts should give deference to, uh, to agencies when interpreting legal provisions. That was kind of not an issue throughout the 19th and early 20th century. It was mainly a question of how much deference should you give agencies when they're interpreting questions of fact or when they're deciding on questions of fact. And I think the important insight that I try to make in this paper that I, I didn't see fully explicated elsewhere is that once you talk about matters of fact, in legal cases, you're really talking about the jury because obviously there's an immense amount of constitutional history in America, most importantly embodied in the Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, that no question of facts decided by a jury should be questioned by any court. Uh, and basically the U.S. Constitution and state constitutions uh, usually have similar provisions, gave juries sort of carte blanche to make factual decisions in individual cases. And 
if you look at those constitutional provisions, that would almost seem to obviate the possibility of regulatory commissions doing anything, especially when their entire focus was on making factual distinctions and decisions, uh, let alone the, the argument today we have about uh, independent commissions making legal distinctions, which is obviously, in one sense, maybe even a further step of displacing the role of, of courts in, uh, in our legal process. But back in the day, uh, when the earliest regulatory commissions were sort of arising, people realized the main conflict was not with kind of existing judges or common law rules. It was with, with juries. And my piece kind of tries to explain why that conflict played out and how the earliest progressives and reformers tried to fit regulatory commissions into a world where juries were still pretty central. Well, and you, you cite the work of Tom Merrill uh, on, on the origins of the appellate review model of administrative law. Obviously, he explored these themes. There's a, a book that came out a few years ago by, I believe, a Japanese scholar, Hiroshi Okayama, called Judicializing the Administrative State on the Rise of Independent Commissions in the United States. But by and large, this is, I think, an, an underexplored uh, part of American administrative history. And your work, in addition to just tracing the history, it points to other debates. It points to debates about non-delegation and uncertainty, right? Today, we, we think about the independent agency statutes and how they're often in the broadest possible terms, you know, public convenience and necessity, uh, just and reasonable and so on. They seem like huge non-delegation problems. But as you as you allude to in your papers, in many ways, the the the, the legislators who created these commissions thought they were actually working towards greater certainty in law, not not greater uncertainty. But we could explore all of this. Let me turn it over to Jace um, to maybe start with how the how your work came about. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could walk us through what piqued your interest in this topic in the first place. You mentioned that so many accounts of the rise of the administrative state focus on the traditional three branches of government and how some of these agencies might have eroded the original separation of powers. What made you think about juries? Uh, yeah, so it was sort of a two-step. So one was just kind of the, the the simple insight that the other kind of body that was occasionally called, and is still occasionally called, the fourth branch of government is the jury. It was this sort of aspect that was clearly part of the judicial branch, but was always considered somewhat independent. And it always seemed a little strange to me that this the, the new fourth branch of government, what we call the, the administrative state, uh, never really seemed to be closely related to debates about the jury. And then I look back in the history and you saw that obviously this was probably the central question in the rise of the administrative state, how it displaced juries in most of the early legal cases around the administrative state dealt with the displacement of juries. And so that seemed really strange to me and that got piqued my interest. But the other side of this is something we'll, we'll talk about in a second, I imagine, is I kept seeing the argument in a lot of historical works and some legal works as well that most of the administrative state was an opportunity to bring experts into government. And I kept looking at kind of individual biographies of some of these commissioners and regulators, and, and they weren't experts. <laughs> they, they just clearly weren't. That sometimes they were union officials. A large number of times they were former yeah. politicians. Uh, a lot of them made no pretense of being experts in the field they were regulating. And so that started me down the path, which I did in the article of trying to create a database of all of the federal commissioners appointed basically from the creation of the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission in 1887, 
up till 1935, kind of see how many of these people you could arguably claim that expertise in their area, how many were politicians, how many were academics. And and I found that in most cases, like the ICC and, and the Federal Trade Commission, you know, about half were, were former politicians. There was no pretense that this was keeping them out of government, uh, or sorry, keeping polit- uh, administrative law out of politics. And most of them didn't have particular knowledge about the fields they were regulating. Uh, they were just union officials or brakemen or um, lawyers who maybe had worked in a million different fields besides railroads. And so that related to the jury question in the sense of the earliest reformers who created the administrative state, they didn't like juries because they were inconstant, but they liked some aspects of the jury, which they basically imported to our administrative state model. Obviously, it was multi-member commissions. Obviously, in a sense, they were supposed to be unprejudiced. And you saw this term come up constantly with the early reformers. You didn't want prejudice commission or prejudice juries to decide on these difficult questions. Uh, but what was distinct about these earliest administrative uh, commissions was that they were long-term and they were independent. They were unlike a jury, which saw one case and was done. Basically, these things, these commissions would last over years and years, and they would have overlapping overlapping memberships that would allow them to kind of accumulate expertise inside the agency, as opposed to the idea that they were kind of bringing outside experts into government. One example of these would be Thomas Cooley, right? He was the, the, the chief justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. I think actually our friends uh, at, at at Georgetown, Randy Barnett, and his program on constitutional law, they name the, their annual lecture after Thomas Cooley as a constitutional thinker. But he became the first chairman of the Interstate Commerce Commission, right? That's that's correct. And so a lot of people take the Cooley appointment uh, to chair the Interstate Commerce Commission as kind of an exemplary version of this expert uh, administrative body that they imagine the early progressives were creating. Uh, and if, but if you look at it, one Cooley wrote on everything under the sun from, you know, his most famous book was constitutional limitations on the ability, what sort of laws, economic regulations, anti-property rights legislation could courts strike down. He wrote a little bit on railroads. He, he was a receiver for the defunct Wabash Railroad for a short period, but he was not a railroad expert. I mean, under my categorization when I did the database. He counts as quote unquote an expert because he has some of he has some at least some experience of, of railroading. Uh but he even that kind of minimal exception uh you know expertise in the area was sort of the exception. The other people, uh you had someone like Thomas Morrison who was I think chair of the Ways and Means Committee before he uh became one of the first commissioners of the ICC. And I have a quote from Senator Shelby Cullum, who created the ICC, was the senator pushing it in in Congress. And he basically demanded that uh, the then-President Grover Cleveland appoint uh, Cooley because he appointed Morrison clearly as a political sap uh, to some of his his friends. I found some letters in the, in the Cleveland papers that just said, well, you have to appoint Morrison. Uh, we need his his help. He was a good defender of the democracy. And you saw this with some of the other early appointees. I think it was August Schoenmacher, who's also a, a state senator. As I showed, about half of the, the first ICC appointments were either uh, were either former politicians or members of the Democratic or Republican Party machines. And I, I mentioned it would be a little higher if you included that one poor soul, Claude Porter, who lost eight separate elections. <laughs> Uh, to political office before it was appointed to the ICC. So 
One of the reasons that I think people are confused about the expertise of the administrative state is they take a few examples like Cooley, who themselves were not really quote-unquote railroad experts, and they assume that that kind of translates into the whole. Uh, but two, I, I thought it was very strange as well that you didn't have kind of the recognition that if you were going to have independent bodies, independent of the president's removal power, removal power appointed in this era, and they would actually be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, you were guaranteeing they would be political bodies. There was a pretense that anyone appointed by the set, appointed by a president and approved by the Senate in the late 19th and early 20th century would be a preeminently political individual. Um, and as I also try to show in the piece, that explained, they kind of did want that when they wanted purely expert sort of civil servants, they had a different way to do that in the 19th century. They put them in the, in the civil service, uh, bureaucracy. They put them as non-Senate confirmed heads, uh, in the Bureau of Animal Industry or the Bureau of Chemistry. And they had very expert individuals who were working in the government in this, uh, this era, but they didn't want that. They didn't try to do that with the independent commissions. Uh, that many people today still claim were based on a desire for expertise. I thought the piece did a great job substantiating the point that most of these people had prior political experience. They weren't coming in having gone to railroad school. And in fact, that's one thing you point out. The academic knowledge didn't exist at the time because oftentimes these were new things uh, that the government was stepping in to regulate new industries. So given that they weren't focused on expertise, at least initially, what explains the fact that reformers were thinking that these people would be less biased than juries over time or waiting for them to develop expertise or at least experience working in these industries on the commissions? What made them think they'd be less biased than a juror? Uh, yeah, so... One of the things, uh, as you mentioned, is that there the idea that there was, quote, like expert railroad regulators in this era is kind of absurd because there was this thing as like an expertise in railroad regulation. That wasn't a that wasn't a class taught in colleges or anything. And the same thing, obviously, with antitrust, with the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, this was just a totally new field that kind of politicians created. And then the expertise was backfilled in later by colleges and universities who tried to train people to get into these places. Uh, but on the question of, of the prejudiced jurors, one of the, the things that more recent research has shown is that the commission form of government was often, in some sense, a conservative reaction against extremely, one could say, liberal or interventionist moves to punish railroads. And there's always been a lit, a bit, a bit of a concern about well, why did the 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 more interventionist sides dislike commissions, and why did the conservative sides like them? Uh, why did the business interests? Why were they somewhat favorable to commissions as sort of the best means to regulate railroads if the railroads were going to be regulated, as opposed to having the legislature set rates or the jurors set rates? Uh, and what I try to show in the paper is that. They were very concerned about, quote, the prejudice of juries. And even Thomas Cooley talked about this. He said, juries hate railroads. And this is, I, I think of the old line from, who was it, Tom Wolfe, who said, you know, the Bronx jury redistributes the wealth. The old idea that, you know, juries hate large corporations. They tend to be very suspicious of them. And if you have a case that is involving this difficult question, a jury is going to have a railroad on one side and a poor employee or a shipper or a farmer on the other. And they're going to side for 
the, the shipper, the farmer, whoever it is. And so the railroads were a way to blunt that. And what a lot of the previous research looked in that, they just said, well, the, the, the rural radicals, the interventionists hated uh, expert commissions. They didn't they trust the experts that would be appointed. Uh, and they, they were, that was research to correct. They didn't like the commissions. But what I try to show is that their main beef with them was they were substituting for juries. They liked juries. They wanted the juries to get at the, these railroads. And these new laws, uh, the new Granger laws, as they were called, basically put criminal and penal penalties on the existing railroads. And they said, the existing railroads, just maybe should I back up for a second and explain kind of like this, the, the, the state of play for railroads around 1870? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so when these first regulatory commissions came up around 1870, starting with Wisconsin and Illinois and some of the, the Midwestern states, they were called the Granger Laws. They basically took what was previously a, a common law duty of common carriers, also mainly railroads this period, but also some uh, shipping lines, others where ferries were treated as common carriers. They said the common law for time out of mind said common carriers have to be non-discriminatory and they have to be reasonable in their rates. The idea was that a common carrier is somewhat of a monopoly. And so the courts can somewhat police the sort of issue of reasonableness and non-discriminatory uh, behavior. And what these Granger laws did is, so, okay, we'll add penal penalties in it, sometimes just kind of multiples of damages you could award. But what really bothered some of the, the more conservative side of uh, uh, the, polit the politics in this period was, well, all of a sudden now you have juries deciding on these questions of reasonableness, uh, which is inherently very vague. And unlike today where we might seem think about these questions as fundamentally legal questions. And, and Adam, you mentioned, uh, obviously, that all of the contemporary language about public convenience and necessity and, uh, you know, reasonable rates and so forth. These were always just considered fundamentally factual questions back in the day. Uh, the, the, the term was the, it's a mixed question of fact and law, uh, or of law and facts. And the jury would have to decide any of those questions. This is the, the classic tort cases that Okay, someone leads the hayrick out and the hayrick catches on fire. Uh, was the hayrick an unplaced in an unreasonable place? You know, there's no fundamental legal sort of line you can draw. And so courts traditionally threw that to the jury. They had to make these decisions. And when you started pushing these heavy penalties on railroads and saying, well, what's a reasonable rate? The railroads rightfully said, my, my lord, I can't. Uh, I don't know what a reasonable rate is. And they kept saying time and time again, you take me for one jury, they're going to tell, say one thing's a reasonable rate. They're going to go next door. It's a different jury is going to say another. And so they say, here, these commissions can create consistency. They'll kind of write these reasonable rates in law, a presumption that these uh, rates are reasonable. And uh, to get around those kind of Seventh Amendment restrictions and local state restrictions on juries deciding these questions, which are fundamentally factual, they said, um, the original decisions of the commissions will be treated as prima facie evidence of what is reasonable or what is non-discriminatory. And then the jury of the courts will look at them and hopefully just approve them. But as I describe, as time goes on, that kind of baseline presumption that it's prima facie reasonable becomes basically an assumption by courts and elsewhere that commissions are the equivalent of juries. And just like courts don't question jury decisions, they shouldn't question commission decisions. So... Very long-winded way, I think. I forget where we got from the original question, but uh, that's uh, that's an explanation of that evolution. Well, maybe just to poke even further back into history, and, and you touch on this in your articles, 
These weren't the first commissions, right? Your paper focuses on the ICC and then later the FTC. Before that, there was the Steamboat Commission. But even before that, from the earliest years of American history, the American government, like other governments, would often create commissions in the aftermath of wars, right? To settle claims, disputes, um, you know, claims of loss and so on. These commissions were created somewhat to settle facts. Um, but, you know, they often had sort of a negotiated aspect uh, to them if they had representatives from from different countries and so on. So, again, to your point about politics, it wasn't just so these weren't just strictly sort of fact-finding investigation bodies. They were doing a little of both sort of fact-finding and but also making judgments about what seems right. And yeah. so that, if anything, is the precursor to the, the, the these regulatory commissions, which in a way were sort of negotiating the settlements between the interests of the 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 um the railroads or the for the FTC, the big companies. The interests of their customers, but also the public interest uh, that was represented by the fact that these were appointed by government rather than by the parties themselves. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. no, that that's that's correct. And so a lot of people like Jerry Mashaw and others show that there's this kind of long administrative state history that goes back to the very origins of America, which is, yeah, these public land commissions, you conquer you take over the Mexican land. Okay, what are we going to do with uh, the new land? Congress doesn't want to write a statute to give every single, you know, parcel out to every single person. They'll say, here's a commission, and it'll decide who it should give to, who should get the land, who has the best claim, etc. Uh, you know, one of the distinctions I do try to draw, and other researchers have drawn this as well, is most of those early commissions were deciding questions of public rent. That you, there was never any debate in American or even English constitutional history that you could set up a commission outside of a jury to decide a question on like, well, who should receive a gift uh, from the government? Who should receive government land? But like, the government technically owned all the land when they conquered Mexico. And so wait, they have to decide who to give it out. They can, uh, they have to make a decision. The commission seems like the best way to do this. So there's this long history of commissions and they were basically given carte blanche and there's some good researchers into the, the history of that. I, I forget, I think Bomb's Eye uh, is one of the, the great researchers. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ditcher Bomb's Eye. Ditcher Bomb's Eye has done some of the great research on that kind of history of how courts treated those those public commissions in deciding uh, and reviewing their administrative actions. But everyone agreed that up until about 1870, and especially up until around 1906, 1907, they... These commissions couldn't make decisions on private rights. That that's that's all that runs headlong into all the things about courts hearing uh, individual cases and in the in the Article Three. It runs headlong into the Seventh Amendment jury issue. And the administrative state was a long effort over those decades to kind of erode those those distinctions between what was the public commission and what was these private commissions dealing with with private rights. And you got to the point where. As I pointed, the new, a lot of people recognize this. The New York Times said, you know, we basically substituted commissions for juries. The ICC itself said, you know, now the Supreme Court, after a few of these cases, um, has basically appointed us a, a special jury uh, for to decide railroad questions across the whole country. And, you know, in a sense, when we're debating about the, the administrative state, or we're debating about how it kind of upset the, the fundamental equilibrium of the original Constitution, I think we really need to focus on that and focus on how that upset this distinction the founders made between what decisions juries should make and what decisions courts and 
and administrators should stake. And, and that's really what happened in, in that progressive era in Gilded Age. Well, talking about those fundamental debates, I'm reading your articles in the context of many people on the right thinking about the non-delegation doctrine and trying to figure out how much policy needs to be made by Congress and other legislatures versus commissions, administrators, not so much courts. And then looking at the debate between whether juries are competent to decide what reasonable or non-discriminatory is versus commissions, was there any debate or concern at the time about whether legislatures should be doing more of that, making those standards more definite? Absolutely. So so some of the earliest Granger laws, those railroad regulatory laws, included basically just line-by-line statutes of you will charge two cents a mile per passenger mile on the road from Wakusha to Milwaukee or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, the, the, the issue was, of course, was this became absurdly complex and abstruse very quickly. And the legislature realized they had no particular, uh, capability to do that. Uh, and they, uh, you know, if you read a lot of these state, uh, legislate or the state railroad commissions annual reports, you know, the, the level of detail of what they're dealing with is absolutely absurd. It's, well, is they're fully grown, grown chickens. Are they appropriate for her? The, you know, three cents per, you know, hundred weight versus baby chicks. You know, that kind of just how far are the weeds do you have to get to these sorts of factual questions? And that's what in in American history, that's why people punted to to juries to kind of deal with the these questions. Again, you said reasonable and stuff, and juries were supposed to embody the the sense of justice in the community. And if you look at some of you know the earliest writers in American history, um, James Wilson especially, uh, but, you know, even going back to Montesquieu about why juries were so important, that juries were kind of the one branch of government that wasn't in government. And, you know, Montesquieu talks about this very close. A lot of people, when you read Montesquieu, it's interesting. He says that, you know, he talks about the three branches, and to some extent, he really considers the judicial branch a sub-branch of, of the executive branch. But if you look at what he thinks about the the, the judicial branch, he basically means juries. He says, like, when he's talking about judicial branch, he says, oh, you know, it's these independent fact finders who are not appointed by the the king or, or the parliament that can decide these questions. And that's who you want, someone entirely outside of government to make these sort of distinctions. And James Wilson, in one of our most important founding fathers, said this even more clearly. He said, you know, jury discretionary power is always dangerous. And obviously, one of the fundamental issues with the U.S. Constitution is how to cabin and control government discretionary power. And the sort of line they drew, very importantly, was, well, if you embody the fundamental discretionary power in the jury, that makes sure you don't have the danger of government oppression, because it will always be independent of the government itself. The jury is temporary, which was a benefit. The jury was drawn from the population and returned to the population. Uh, there was no... You're going to have to have discretion in government. That was always the understanding. People realized, but how do you control that discretion? The jury did that. They made sure it wasn't part of it. And you know, whatever we think of the potential benefits in the, the commission of giving that certainty, we've seen the downsides of that as well. And that now that discretionary power is embodied entirely in these commissions that are very uh, obviously political and very adhering to the, the political beliefs of the individuals who appoint them and approve them and so forth. And so 
that's one of those things, you know, if you look back at, at the founding sort of separation of powers they did, that, that's really fundamentally upset that division and why people have justifiable concerns about the discretionary power of the administrative state. Yeah, and speaking of discretion makes me think about how there are other debates beyond non-delegation. You're worried about the independence of these agencies, and I think Adam had a question about how that fits in. I do, and you know, we're recording this in late March, so in the immediate aftermath of the, some of the banking disruptions, and it's interesting to see sort of the the the, the dance of, of sort of policy making between the Biden administration, the FDIC, which is independent, the Federal Reserve, which is independent, both all both trying to maintain their independence, but still working with the administration. It's a timeless question in, in regulation. When we go back to the beginning of this, the the era that you're looking at. My interest in this, the questions that you're writing about, was peaked years ago when I realized that the Interstate Commerce Commission was created in the same year by the same Congress that repealed the Tenure of Office Act, right? The Tenure of Office Act, which we had an entire impeachment, presidential impeachment over. I just thought that was very curious that the same Congress that repealed that famous or infamous law is the one that creates the independent ICC, which is incredibly telling and, and your connection of the ICC's origins to juries and the need to have jury ICC independence like juror independence to give the commissioners space and time that they needed to build expertise, uh, to build ex- maybe the better word is experience yeah. um, and, 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 and so on that, that I thought was extremely, extremely interesting. So how could you, I mean, does that sound right? And what was the, the 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 Congress's vision for what the independence of the ICC commissioners and later the FTC commissioners would actually achieve? Yeah, and and you you've obviously written eloquently on Humphrey's executor and some of the other decisions that have uh, you know shown that have cemented that idea of the independent uh, uh, commissions and executive agencies. So yeah, that. It was interesting. Most of the executives at the time, and if you look at someone like Charles Evan Hughes in uh, New York, who was governor then and later, of course, chief justice uh, of the Supreme Court, uh, they were fans of the responsible executive idea. They wanted complete power to appoint all of these members and to control them and remove them as they saw fit. But a lot of these reformers who tried to create this independent regulatory commission idea realized that well, the only way to get expertise, and again, if you're not going to bring independent expertise into these agencies, the only way to achieve that independent uh, expertise is to keep them in, in office for a long time. Uh, and for the other parts of government, for the good old you know civil service system and for the cabinet officials that, as you mentioned, they repealed the, the Tenure of Office Act for, they wanted the president to have that authority. They didn't want to upset that aspect. But for these commissions that were making jury-like decisions, those, the independence of office was was crucial for that, because you heard this language time and time again. I cited it from the, the California Constitutional Commission, which set up the uh, the first elected railroad commission in the country, and I'll just add that one of my favorite arguments against the idea that these were supposed to be expert commissions in the beginning uh, it's particularly strange when you look at it, about five of the earliest regulatory commissions were elected. There was no pretense they would be elected, but they were independent of the rest of the executive branch, and they stayed in office for a long time. That was the uh, that was the intention. But the, you hear the language time and time again in that California Constitutional Convention 
uh, in the debate about the ICC. They said, nobody's an expert on these issues yet. You put a, you stay in office for one year, two years, you're starting to begin to be useful uh, on the commission. And I quoted, I think um, it was Walter Hines, who was a federal railroad commission commissioner and official, who said, people become good commissioners by being commissioners. And the idea was the only way for, quote unquote, expertise to accumulate was to have that independence uh, in that in inside those commissions. That meant prevention of the, the removal power. Now, as I also try to show, obviously, with my discussion of the how common uh, political appointments were, how common the, the political machinations were after the appointments, you know, obviously, that was never achieved to the full extent that people had hoped. And... I, I went into William Humphrey's papers too, and you know who famously, as Adam, you've written about uh, his removal precipitated that the modern understanding of independent commissions. Humphrey was one of the most political individuals that ever lived. In America. You know, he wrote to Roosevelt that said, "You know, don't remove me because Senator Dill uh, is is really interested in me maintaining this position." And I talked to him regularly, and his papers had all sorts of. Uh, all sorts of letters to other senators, representatives. He was weighing in on every issue under the sun. Uh, you know, that that goal of independence was obviously crucial for, for formulating the administrative state. But I think it was an open question, especially considering how political the appointments were and the appointment process was, uh, that independence was actually achieved. Well, given that they're independent and that these commissions have replaced juries, what is your overall assessment of where these commissions fit into the constitutional system? You mentioned the Seventh Amendment. Does yes. it fit easily then if the goal is to have the sense of the community, but maybe an elevated sense if coming from a commission versus a jury? Well, it, it's and we fit these into like sort of the original understanding of the Constitution. I, I think to some extent the answer has to be no. I mean, is is this something similar to like West Coast Hotel v. Parish, where we're like, we we just had a constitutional revolution and we can't go back? Like, it, I I I can understand both sides of the debate, but either like we've gone too far down this path and uh, there's no way to sort of untangle the knot at this point, and we just have to live with the consequences. But I mean, I think there is a, a sort of counter argument. But so as the original commissions were created, as they said, they were they're basically treated somewhat as spe special masters in equity that were supposed to find these facts in individual equity cases report back to the court and the court kind of made a decision back then. um and they did that for for juries themselves they did that here's our our sense uh, of what the rate should be and the jury can say hey that's ridiculous that's not ridiculous but they still had kind of clerk blanche to decide that i mean i think there's a way in which uh which that could fit in the original constitutional model as not a fact finder, but as some of the informing juries or kind of a new rules of evidence sort of thing, which upsets some of the original rules of evidence. But uh, but I think that could potentially uh, kind of square that circle. The, the other thing, of course, is now is that we're much less interested in the fact finding questions and we've moved kind of one step up the, the ladder now. And despite the clear language of the Administrative Procedure Act and etc., that courts should make all decisions of law. We've clearly allowed these agencies to have a lot of discretion uh, in just deciding fundamental matters of what the law means. And I, I think that's a that's much kind of easier question about whether or not independent commissions should have that much discretion and power. Yeah, that 
I think that's really crucial, what we've learned and what's happened in the passage of time since all of this, including since Humphrey's Executor. You, you mentioned I've written here or there a bit about Humphrey's Executor, and and uh, that's probably probably why we, one of the reasons we get along so well is that, you know, you and I probably both would say Humphrey's Executor deserves maybe a little more credit than it gets, which is a grading on a very low curve, right? It's not to, not to say that Humphrey's Executor was right, but that maybe it wasn't as completely and utterly wrong or cynical as it's often made out to be in light of the 40 years of history that preceded it. But of course, we now are grappling mostly with the century that's followed Humphrey's executor. And so you've seen a change in agencies. Uh, the Gray Center did a, uh, we, we uh, one of our roundtables, we had a, a working paper by Daniel Crane of the University of Michigan. Maybe we'll, we'll link it in the show notes, but where he looks at, at the history of the FTC, he'd written about that before and he returns to it the history of the FTC, particularly in light of the CELA law decision recently, and saying that that what this court is doing now on executive power is it it it, it implies a lot about the FTC today and its powers, particularly when we really realize how how different the FTC is now from what it was once upon a time. And even when Humphrey's executor was decided, it's not clear the FTC was really what the Supreme Court thought it was then. In the century since Humphrey's executor, we've seen the independent commissions become more like the executive agencies, uh, and we've seen the executive agencies become more like independent commissions. Uh, whatever these were as sort of quasi-judicial, you know, more than a century ago, 150 years ago, they now it really does seem to be clearly uh, an, an exercise in administration and policy making in a much more sort of executive-ish seeming way than a, like a detached, neutral uh, jury. Uh, so maybe to reiterate the question uh, that I started with, Judge, how, how should we take everything that we've discussed on the podcast and everything you're writing about and apply it uh, in modern debates over executive power? What does your work teach the modern debates? That, well, one, I, I think it, it requires us or... I, I, I hope it, it it makes us grapple a little harder with the place of the jury in our constitutional system. I, I think um, Suya Thomas and others have written also very eloquently about the gradual displacement of the jury in our, in our system. Um, and I think we really need to think about how much that's upset the, the kind of fundamental constitutional order that the framers tried to find. Um, and that goes from everything from the plea bargaining uh, uh, explosion to the issues around these uh, these independent agencies. Now, the the other thing, though, that I think uh, I hope it helps us think a little better with exactly that is if these agencies weren't originally expert, if they, you know, they, to some extent, you can make a good claim they're not particularly expert now. It's not. It's not like there's always experts here. How do we make them as uh, kind of? both expert and independent as we can make them without kind of upsetting any of those fundamental issues that we want our constitutional structure to have. Uh, and how can they, you know, act as efficient fact finders in a ways that we're not going to uh, return entirely to juries and to the legislature, et cetera. I, I think we have to go a lot further in, in clarifying that role and, and maybe, you know, again, having some of the, the, intervention that the government clearly has, you know, something like, you know, what Lagan Kagan wrote about the you know, presidential administration. This is kind of clearly the step we've, we've gone down that 
the president's involved in all these commissions intimately. There's no pretense a lot of times that this is uh, what an independent agency should be doing just because their own decisions or look at what Tom Wheeler did when he was, you know, at the FCC and deciding, you know, net neutrality. That was clearly on orders basically from on high. That's something we should all, I think, be somewhat concerned about. And in some senses, identical to even the original founders in the administrative state, what they they wanted to accomplish. Uh, so I think those are all issues that that really need to to be dealt with. But uh, I think getting these these agencies back to a, a more limited space where they can be in, it, they can inform the the other branches of government. They can have some amount of discretion in their limited sphere without taking over all the basic functions of the legislature and the courts, uh, I think is obviously a very important step. As I mentioned in my article, that you kind of already saw this transition happening in the late 19th, early 20th century. You had a lot of review, law review articles say, hey, basically every jury question, every factual question in America, all these legislative questions uh, we're dealing with are, quote, administrative questions. And so let's have administrators deal with them. Uh, that's a very dangerous path, and that's something we're obviously going down further and further down these days, where Congress and courts and everyone punts to these these commissions to treat all questions as administrative. But, you know, there's not a clear line between administration and policy decisions, as we've learned in the past 120-plus years, uh, and we don't want administration to eat up all the difficult political questions we deal with, just like we don't want political questions to eat up the, the sort of administrative uh, and factual court finding issues that we also want to keep separate. Well, that's a great point to make, especially at this moment. There's a few new books out on administration that are really trying to reassert expertise and make the case for expertise in, in administration. You have uh, most recently William uh, Areza, his book, Rebuilding Expertise, Creating Effective and Trustworthy Regulation in an Age of Doubt. That's the subject, uh, the week that we're taping this, is the subject of a symposium at the Yale Journal on Regulation. Just re- just before that, you saw a book from Sid Shapiro and Elizabeth Fisher on administrative competence. So in this era, when we're having a lot of fights over the constitutionality of agencies um, and, and ba- just the theory of what it is that agencies contribute, you see this reemergence of the case for expertise. And so your paper is, is very well-timed for that. It's also very well-timed for the litigation that's coming up, I think, in the Seventh Circuit, right? The case against where Walmart is challenging the FTC. It's um, it's like the opposite of the indep- agency independence cases we're familiar with. Usually, you see people challenging the agency's independence, but I think Walmart is challenging the FTC's executive powers. Oh. Basically, they're saying, you know, in light of the the honored precedent of Humphrey's executor, which we all love and cherish, uh, the FTC must not have any executive powers. I mean, that case, if it were successful. The upshot of it would be to make the FTC look a lot more like the F- kind of FTC that that you're talking about. Um, as long as I'm name dropping all these things, let me just throw one more in. Uh, about two, three years ago, we did a Great Matters podcast with Robert Post of Yale. He had a really interesting law review article at the time, I think in the Journal of Supreme Court History, on like the two-year odyssey of Chief Justice Taft trying to write the Myers decision. Just fascinating how Taft was trying to write that pro-executive power decision while kind of bracketing off the independent commissions, independent adjudication, civil service, and uh, clearly uh, he didn't exactly succeed in that. Um, but if for folks who are still listening to this episode and can't get enough of this stuff, please go back and listen to that episode. We'll link that too in the show notes. 
But above all, be sure to read the two papers we've been discussing today by Judge Glock. In Regulation Magazine, the brand new issue, he has the the essay, The Origins of the Novice Administrative State. And that really, um, you know, summarizes and builds upon the much longer paper he has uh, now out in Studies in American Political Development titled The Novice Administrative State, the function of regulatory commissions in the progressive era. So, Judge, uh, thanks for writing these papers and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Great. And uh, thanks, as always, to all of you for, for tuning in. Please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter. 